Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mabel, and today I'm joined by someone I've been trying to get on the show for a long time, but she's been a little bit preoccupied with uh, with protest and revolution across the streets of Beirut and beyond. So I'm really delighted to say that Carmen Jiha is joining us today. Carmen is Assistant Professor of Public Administration at the American University of Beirut, and she's written extensively on a whole host of things pertaining to politics, law, inclusion, and exclusion across Lebanon and beyond. Carmen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Simon, for having me and for, for, for telling the story of Lebanon. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure to, to create a little bit of space and do the little bit that I can do for people like yourselves to share your your fascinating work and, and experiences. Um, Carmen, I, I always feel a little bit... Um, cautious about asking this question, particularly when I'm speaking to people from, from Lebanon, but but I, I must because it's how I open the show. But can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in, in politics and academia more broadly, please? Yeah, so thank you. for This is something I've thought about for a very long time, actually, and um, I've tried to say it in a way that doesn't rub off anybody in the wrong way but (laughs) (laughs) I I sort of I sort of joined academia uh, with a background in activism I've been interested in politics like my whole life I think I the first protest I organized I was in school against the science teacher and then once against like wearing the uniform because I didn't understand why we should wear wear uniforms so I've been interested a lot in politics and this idea that you know we can do something to change you know our living conditions etc and then you know of course I grew up at the time where the Syrians occupied Lebanon and we couldn't talk and we couldn't protest and we couldn't object to a lot of things. And then in 2005, you know, when that changed, then my generation sort of took part uh, a lot in that. And then the disappointment, of course, that came with that because the Syrians left, but our politicians stayed. Uh, I got increasingly interested in various forms of activism, but also increasingly frustrated with various forms of activism. So going for a PhD was sort of like a gift to myself to learn more, to open my horizon, to get that time and space of, of reading about different experiences. And while I was doing my PhD, the Arab uprisings happened. And so gradually I get into I get into academia with this sort of 10-year track position, believing that the we have a role to play. The university has a role to play. And knowledge is really very much at the basis of the things that shape our lives. And I'm happy to learn to play my small parts in it. So I'm, I'm an activist academic. Amazing. And I don't do big theory stuff. <laughs> well, I, I love that. I, I'm not sure that I dis- I would uh, agree with you on that because some of the, the things you've been observing are deeply theoretical. But um it's really interesting to hear about that that activist yes, background. But I work on on my country and the region that I'm part of. And I did my PhD on Libya as well. I mean, I work yeah. about issues and people and experiences and campaigns that I've been part of, and that's a particular type of scholarship that sure. I'm learning, sort of not to shy away from. Yeah. And I think that's that's wonderful. It's one of the big things that I I really love about your work, Carmen. It's this the focus on agency, and I guess it's it's hard to to ignore it in the current times, but also hearing about your background as an activist makes a lot of sense why you've then focused on agency in the ways that that you have. But before we get onto that, I feel like I have an important question that I'm sure some of our listeners will be asking as well. What was it that prompted you to uh, to launch a petition and try and protest against a science teacher? <laughs> Uh, he assigned the chapters that he hadn't taught us in class, so I stayed to wow, sit in. Yeah. I was in eighth grade or something. Excellent. <laughs> Good. Well, standing up for your rights from an early age. 
excellent, just what we should be doing. And then, can you tell us a little bit about the the activist background that you were you were engaged in post two thousand and five and before the the PhD? What what were some of the causes that were were driving you? Um, so when 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 a lot of us went down to the streets, you know, on March fourteen and what became known as sort of the Cedar Revolution, the demands were very much around. You know, we were young and we wanted to a better system of participation. We wanted, you know, free press and access to information, a better election law. We wanted to participate in in, in politics and and you know, we wanted women's rights. We wanted all of these things that got sidelined right after sort of Lebanese political parties, you know, took over power and went back to this tradition of power sharing and consensual. So I, I couldn't find myself in any of the mainstream parties and, you know, started getting engaged in a lot of civil society activism. It, it meant a lot at the time. Now I think there's much more awareness that that sort of activism and advocacy really stays at the periphery and doesn't change much in terms of politics. And that was like my PhD. But at the time, there was a lot of excitement to do, you know, just like dialogue in cafes and, you know, petitions and drafting laws and going to parliament, like that engagement with formal national institutions was very exciting at the time, albeit very short-lived because, you know, none of that really creates pressure on the political system and on politicians to make a change. But yeah, I was involved in like drafting an access to information law and setting up a coalition for election reform and working a lot on like women's and youth participation, that sort of thing. Amazing. What do you think you you learned from that that period as purely as an activist, if I can say purely as an activist? But what do you think you took out of that period that that shaped your your scholarship, particularly moving into the PhD? Uh, yeah, so actually, I mean, what I learned, uh, like, on the streets and doing work, like, I translated into my, my thesis and later a book. It's about, you know, the constraints around civil society activism in countries that have power-sharing systems that are based on sectarian or regional representation. And I extrapolate a bit from the case of Lebanon to say why such groups also fail in Libya, because they remain very much at the periphery of where real power uh, lurks, and they're very much fashioned you know, like um, sort of the Western model, like, oh, if you go with the neighborhood group and you sign a petition, the mayor is going to respond. And that's not how politics work uh, in places like Lebanon. Mm. So what I learned, like the frustration that was on the street, I just spent time, you know, trying to understand it and think about it and theorize it. Um, Yeah, and it it doesn't work. But it, it serves a purpose in that it sort of gets people that aren't part of traditional party structures and aren't convinced, you know, of sectarian leaders to have a space to talk and to to be oriented and to understand but and to make friends, right? Which is yeah. important social networks, but not really to affect like political change. Okay. Okay. That's that's good to know. Prior to that, Carmen, what what had you studied at, at university? Uh, so I did a BA and a master's in public administration. In like, public uh, administration. Yeah. Okay. So there is a, a, a bit of a, a relation between your 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 studies and your your activism. Yeah, very much. I cho- you know, I think they. I chose my studies because I you know really cared about public sector and politics, sure. and okay. then also I and yeah. yeah. Okay, wonderful. So where did you do your PhD? I did my PhD in St Andrews. At St Andrews, wow! So you left the the beautiful climate of Beirut to the cold windy, gloomy joy that is St. Andrews. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very charming for the first couple of days and then increasingly very difficult. But it was a good place to write and I exactly, had a yeah. wonderful supervisor. But yeah. Who did you work with there? I worked with Dr. Frederick Volpe, who's now at uh, the Walid Center in Edinburgh. 
Fantastic, yes. Yeah. And that PhD then went on to become your, your book with Routledge that was published in 2016, is that right? Uh, yes. So, so the title is Civil Society and Political Reform in Lebanon, Libya, Transition and Constraint. Yes, that feels like such a long time ago, but yes. Yeah, I can imagine. So can we go back to that just just briefly then? And just, I'm, I'm curious about about this. In part, I'm curious about the, the case studies. I mean, Lebanon is, is obvious, but, but where did Libya come from? And also, what was it that you were trying to, to do in the book and in the thesis? Um, so first, like where the idea of Libya came from uh, is that I met, so when, so I started doing, uh, I did my PhD proposal in 2010, right? like in the spring of that year, and I was going to just do Lebanon and then the, the, the Arab protests and the uprisings happened. And I met a really nice group of people who wanted to create an NGO in Libya to work on constitution and elections. And I said, Hey, can I tag along? and tell the story and, you know, sort of help them do focus groups, etc. the Forum for Democratic Libya. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, can I use it for my PhD? And they said, yes. And then I had to, you know, with, with, with Frederick, you know, work on grounding it theoretically. So I argue in the book that Libya, like Lebanon, exhibits elements of power sharing politics because of this insistence of the three, you know, East um, Tripoli and the south of Libya being the foundation for creating the state of Libya, also being the reason for its fragmentation is very similar to sect-based politics here and how when that happens, you know, people, grassroots groups and civil society and well-intentioned, you know, democracy-seeking groups are left out of that uh, process. And unfortunately, and it's the saddest thing in my life, that that's, that's what happens in Libya, right? A lot yeah. of activists and, and, and women particularly, you know, get assassinated because of their role in that process. So that was the story and that was the book. Fantastic. Well, I say fantastic. I mean, it, it, intellectually. I've been wanting to work on civil society since then. <laughs> right. Okay. Intellectually, it's 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 really fascinating. But but I guess personally, and in terms of the topic, is it's it's deeply depressing, particularly that that Libyan context. But if I've understood you, are you correctly, Carmen? Can you just say a little bit about the parallels between the sort of the sect-based, identity-based communalism in in Lebanon? And also the the geographic communalism in in Libya. Did I understand you correctly there? Uh, yeah. So, so I mean, the the idea is that when you when you when you you know, power sharing is not a pejorative term in politics, right? It's a good thing. You want people who are fighting to come to the table and to agree to share power. Yeah. Right. Sure. But power sharing becomes pejorative, anti-democratic when you lock in the kind of people and the kind of groups that are allowed to participate and limit that participation to these predetermined groups, right? So it becomes, we need this number of people from the South and we need this number of people who are Christian, for example, in the case of that. And it locks representation within those groups. First, it gives like predominant uh, power and automatic representation for leaders who often have money and weapons. And second, it doesn't allow for participation outside that identity. So if you're from the South, but you don't identify like this, you, you're nobody. You can go and say, yeah, I want a better constitution. I want women's rights for as long as you need, but you need to go back to that. And it creates a very you know, tribal, communal way of, of participating, which is completely, you know, non-democratic, not participatory, etc. Yeah. You've you've done a lot of work on this and predominantly on, on Lebanon in the years that followed. But I wonder... Could you just reflect a little bit on on power sharing and how it's manifested in in Lebanon? Because there's been a, a lot of discussion, obviously, in, in recent months about the, 
the successes and the failings of it. I wonder if you can just share a few of your thoughts on on power sharing, not so much in the abstract, but in the in the practical everyday manifestations across Lebanon and Libya. Yeah, so I mean, so for Lib- for Libya, it's different because Libya hit that juncture, like it was about to form a power sharing agreement yeah. among the regions and then conflict broke. So, sure. and I haven't been since maybe end of 2013, 2014. So I can't speak about Libyan politics now, but I can tell you very practically what power sharing means in Lebanon, particularly after the civil war. Please. So it's very simple. So there was a civil war and all the factions were participating in civil war. It's very complicated. A lot of books have been written about this. But the thing is that there's a bunch of men who were sitting on tanks and killing each other that stepped down because of regional uh, auspices and because of the Americans and the Saudis and the Syrians, whatever, that came down from tanks, washed their hands and said, okay, now we're going to govern. How are we going to govern? We're going to divide the spoils of war and the different, you know, ministries and the different public resources among ourselves. And this locked in participation. So you can't participate if you're outside their loyalty. So it's less sectarian. It's more about these 10, 12 men that agree. And and they also create the facade that they disagree. And they've, you know, completely made all public institutions void of their meaning. Like, Parliament doesn't matter in Lebanon. They go decide on something called a national dialogue table, whatever they want to decide, you know. A conflict isn't resolved here. It's solved in Doha, in Damascus. It's solved in D.C. Like, they've completely, you know, made the state uh, rid of all its power, its resources, and they basically decide on, on everything. You want a job, you want to... You know, you want to fix the street down your house, you want uh, medicine for your kid, you want to travel, that's it. And these people have an investment in this system, a a financial, material and and blood and sweat investment since the last 30 years. And this is why this is the only time where we've been able to sort of shake their power because the revolution has brought people from all over the country and different classes and different age groups, etc. But we've never seen anything like it yet. I've got so many things to ask you on the basis of that, that, Carmen. I mean... Partly, it strikes me that that maybe there's a, a slight issue in terms of what John Nagel called called the Lebanese power sharing agreement a zombie power sharing agreement. But I wonder if if maybe that's not the the right term, given that there's a very clear sort of control, as you say, by these these individuals at the top, and then the rest of it is just maybe doing the bidding of these puppeteers, perhaps. But there's also a point about. Men. I mean, you were very clear in in your in your answer that you said this is a system imposed by men sitting on tanks. So where does where does gender fit in? I mean, gender is obviously so very important to to all aspects of life. But where does gender fit into this this topic of power sharing? Uh, yeah, it doesn't. So I can speak on this uh, in in several ways, and you know, try not to sound uh, how not to try to sound disillusioned. Um, So it doesn't fit in because for this system to stay in place, you need three things. You need weapons and you need religious courts to back you up and you need money, right? And the people that control the courts and the money and and the weapons are men. They have no interest in giving up any of these, any of the seats in these triangles and uh, giving any leeway or rights for women or working on gender equality means that they lose seats and they lose control over these three aspects. So, I mean, it's as simple as things like, you know, removing child marriage will upset the courts or marital rape until the last two years or so the rapist could marry his victim or could even suggest marrying his victim and he would get out of uh, 
or you know, going to jail or whatever. Uh, so the, the the politicians can't upset the religious courts. They need each other to govern mm-hmm. and to tell people this is God's will and you like it or you don't like it. Mm-hmm. They're not going to give up money. So women, for example, couldn't participate in, in free trade until 1992, 1994. Um, until the last five, seven years, uh, uh, mothers couldn't open up bank account for their kids that sort of thing and in politics I mean of course women can't be represented because they have no access to the men who decide on the seats etc all of these gatekeepers and I think um, NGOs have done a good job in terms of keeping this issue alive and working on gender issues and certainly organizations like Kafa and Abad have created you know protection centers for women and, and tried to improve harassment etc but you can't really make any political reform in the in the direction of gender equality as long as this triangle of power uh, stays. And I've tried, believe me, I tried to do the civil society route. I sat for a year and a half on the National Commission, which turned out to be, you know, really a, a fiasco and, and, a, and a waste of time and, and effort. So I think that to change it, you need to challenge it. And the only way to challenge it is through revolution. You have to create new ways of doing politics and then the g- gender issues will emerge naturally. But you can't have people in power that you go ask them, please give us our rights. They're just not going to do it. Like, they don't care. Right, yeah. You also don't matter. Like, what I was trying to explain about when you have predetermination of representation, sure. you don't matter. Like, yeah. if you and I will go to say, please do this, they like, do you vote for us? And I'll be like, no. And they'll be like, you know, get the hell out of here. Right, of course. Carmen, it strikes me, I mean, I want to come back to the, the zombie power sharing point in a minute, but it strikes me that that what you've done in your work, and please correct me if I've, I've got this wrong, in terms of the activism and the, the scholarship, but it strikes me that you've, you've engaged with this debate about whether you facilitate change from within or from, from outside, sort of the facilitating gradual change through reform from the inside or through um, facilitating revolution as a form of making lasting change. It strikes me that that you've engaged in both of those different processes. Would that be fair? Yes, that's fair. Uh, it's not all, uh, not, not everything I've done I'm super proud of, but yeah, I've, I've tried. <laughs> and from that, it seems that you've reached the conclusion that the only way to facilitate a change is basically all of them means all of them. The revolution must happen in order to transform the system completely. Yes, but but also to get organized because, you know, yeah, I mean, Lebanon is special and power sharing and sectarianism, but it's like any country, right? I mean, you get sometimes political opportunities for change. You get entry points. You get a nice minister who's like, hey, come, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm public administration and my teaching and, and my consulting like side. So sometimes, yeah, I want to help work on, I don't know, like a digital strategy for the administration. I get excited. I try to go sit and, you know, from the inside. And then it does it doesn't work. So part of me gets sometimes tempted to make a change, to suggest things from the inside, but really like forever and increasingly and every single time and the disappointment is even like worse every time that you realize that you really can't hire a secretary. You can't buy a printer in this country without appeasing all the sides and without them all getting pieces of the pie. So no more change from within for me. I've become super radical. <laughs> that said, you know, I'm you know we're not we're not silly. We're, we know that change takes time. Obviously, yeah. you know, I worked on Libya. I work on Syria. We know that you know uprisings don't always end up happy. So there's a lot of organizing to be done. But yeah, there's no other way. There's no other way. Of course, it. yeah. Well, thank you for, for sharing that and for your, your candor. It, it, it means a lot. Can I take you back to the comment about the zombie power sharing then? I mean, do you, do you think that's probably a, a good way of... 
are viewing this. Do you think that's that's a, an apt description of where we are in terms of a Lebanese uh, power sharing agreement that just will not die? Uh, uh, no, first, uh, there's nothing in life that doesn't die, no? Societies change for the better, for the worse. Politicians come and go. Um, I don't think it's that desolate, but I think that uh, the time that we need versus the time where things are deteriorating, that's the game. We need time to get organized uh, in order to face the, the, the zombie or to face the ghost of, of power sharing, however you want <laughs> sure. to call it. We need time. Sure, okay. So... Some people may say that that, that time was, was achieved through, um, well, in, in the years following the, the quote-unquote, you stink refuge, uh, refuge protests. Is that, is that fair to say, do you think? Or to what extent do you think that, that the garbage protests shaped, shaped the current protests? And I know you, you've written on this. You had a, an incredibly productive uh, 2019 in terms of outputs and... Um, I would strongly recommend everyone having a look at your publications just to see how many different things came out last year. But uh, one of them was talking about the garbage protests and the garbage crisis. I wonder to what extent do you think that shaped the current protests? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Thank you, first of all, for pointing. A lot of things came out because it took it took me a long time to sit down and write them. So, yeah. Um, but... Um, so okay, so for listeners about Lebanon, so the, the the movement in 2015 is very very different to what's happening now, but yeah. at the same time, you know, various experiences of people on the street and people together and people building trust and social networks and even when movements enter abeyance, I think that there's been a lot of learning in the last four years in Lebanon and learning sometimes isn't fun, right? So we had a very bad experience in the 2018 elections with some groups trying to present themselves as an alternative, but really having no real political platform or constituency. That was a big hit for, you know, so-and-so like activists and reformists. In 2015, we had a, a hopeful summer that ended with people getting arrested and beat up and the people getting fatigued. So I think these, these taught a lot of people um, various ways and multi multi layers of engagement in politics but what happened in october is really very very different because it was not a centralized movement it was not urban based fancy people like me it was not about the garbage this was a movement to say these people these men after the civil war all of them failed they suck and uh, the only way to change the system is to get new ones um, and it's a very different dynamic because it really is from Tripoli to Kfarremen with very with the specificities of those areas uh, and the constituencies there. So it's different, but it's not like, you know, like any place in the world. Sure, one movement, you know, creates, it's like a stream of change, right? And you have these yeah, various sort sure. of rivers coming in and people and issues. And now there's greater awareness, intersectionality, women, refugees, like all that learning feeds into this river of protest. But this time the dynamic is very different because it's anti-system and it's anti-all politicians. And sure. it's not issue-based. It's not like, oh, please fix the garbage and we will leave the street or please give us our rights. It's like, you guys got it. Like, that's it. You have to leave. It's existential, right? It, it is very existential. It covers everything. Hence, I guess, the, the powerful chant, all of them means all of them. Yes, it's very, very existential. So where do we go from here? Where do the protests go from here? It's, it seems like it's at a, a crucial moment or series of moments with the the economic crisis and maybe i'm asking you to put your your activist hat back on carmen but where do you see things developing 
uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a daily game of uh, of optimism versus disillusionment, and it's uh, it's really like living crisis. Before the crisis, I was writing, a, I was working on a project that was like crisis as a lived experience, and I was learning about it and really living it is. So it's it depends what day you ask me, but I think to put on my activist hat, I think that people can't stay on the streets forever, and no. I think that people understand power sharing politics better than you and I do, and I think that we've entered into a phase of organizing, and by organizing, I mean taking over the various sectors and the areas that used to be traditionally controlled by these nasty politicians. So we're working on establishing alternate unions, we're working on establishing and supporting like student clubs that are independent, we're working on new forms of feminist politics that aren't co-opted by the system and aren't funded by fancy donors. We're working on a discussion around the next elections and how we should start and where we should start. We're connecting with each other and with the diaspora. So I think we've entered into a phase of very crazy organizing, but it's very much different than before because there's a lot of trust this time. You know, when you get beat up on the street and you get shot at and, yeah. and you look, turn to your side and it's someone from Tripoli or Jaladib or, or, or Sur that you would have never thought to protest with to begin with or or to meet, it creates that sense of shared. They are the enemies of the people and, uh, and we're getting organized, but we need time. And I think that... Uh, you know, your podcast and then people like you and, and people in the media need to keep that spirit. Uh, I think Robert Fisk today has a piece about how desolate it is and no chance for change. And I think that the, the game is against this narrative. Why is there no chance for change? You know, politicians change, societies change. I think we just need time to, to get together. And so I'm very hopeful, but it's very difficult as well. And I guess the optimism comes from agency, because while structures can be devastating and can seek to regulate all aspects of life, they have to engage with, with people. And people are wonderful, creative, empowering, and they have the capacity to do things in, in ways that, that those in power can't even fathom. So where there is still agency, there is hope, I would say. Yeah, and also for young people, because this is a third generation civil war, right? So maybe of course, some of your yeah. listeners in places like Northern Ireland and, and other places, this is third gen, like they don't understand why they can't marry somebody they love from a different sect. And they don't understand why in the age of Bitcoin, we're still going to the bank to withdraw liras. Like they don't understand the same, they don't understand why shutting the, the road is like, oh, going to create a civil war. They don't understand, they don't have the same scars I'm not making fun of the older generation. I mean, the war was scarring and yeah. people have deep-seated fears. And some people, yes, they do believe the other sect is coming to kill them. And that is a real trauma from the war. But this new generation just doesn't get it. And because they don't have the same um, walls, they don't have the same fear, right? Because yeah. they they're they not scared of doing things. They're like, yeah, why, why don't we have a national party? Like, that's stupid, right? <laughs> and yeah. so that innocence and, and, and that openness and that eagerness to, to, to fall in love and have jobs and, and travel and, you know, like fix our image and freaking fix the garbage, like that hope creates a lot of agency, of course. Of course it does. Which country doesn't pick up the garbage or picks up the garbage and throws it in the sea? I mean, I, I, I'm extremely hopeful that things are going to change because things are that bad. I love your hope. I love your optimism. It's it's wonderful and, and we must those of us on the outside must do whatever we can to spread that, that narrative and challenge the 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 nonsense that the likes of Robert Fisk are, are producing in this case. But I think if I may, there's I mean there's a lot that can be learned from, from other cases, other contexts. And we've been fortunate enough in SEPAD to to have worked with, with people like John Nagel, a second shout out today, who's 
who's done fascinating comparative work on, on Northern Ireland and Lebanon. And there's a lot that can be learned from the different cases, I think, in terms of how people have, have mobilised, have engaged with these structures. And and also from the likes of, of Bosnia, where Anne-Kirsten Run is, is doing some really fascinating stuff comparing the the two cases. So there's there's so much to be to be learned and gained from studying things in a comparative perspective. But the thing that strikes me across them all is that all of these things are driven by by agency and by people who are fed up with, with the status quo. Yeah, I agree. And whenever John is in town, I love to talk with him about this, you know, formally and informally, who he also believes, you know, people have the power and also this this blurry line between the, 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 the writing and the research that we've done in the last decade and what's happening now in places like Palestine and Iraq and Chile and Hong Kong and Lebanon. It's a very exciting time to, to throw all these lessons learned, whether some of them are cautionary tales and whether some of them are like tales of, of, of hope and achievement. So I'm, you know, I'm excited. <laughs> Depends on the day you catch me. It's, it's hard. We're broke. Of course. People are poor. It's, it's, it's horrible. And we feel landlocked because nothing works <laughs> really nothing like my credit card won't, i can't you know nothing works but at the same time yeah i mean structures change you're right people have agency yeah. and in the end people are gonna have a choice in elections and uh, that's one thing we can definitely work on exactly and that's 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 a, a sense of, of hope and optimism i guess carmen we've taken up so much of your time today and it's been it's been absolutely amazing talking with you We've not even touched on the project that you're doing on Syrian refugees in Lebanon, which I think is so important and, and overlooked in the context of, of these protests. But we will have to get you on again to talk about that and to talk about how you go about living and carrying on with everyday activities, the mundanities of everyday life, if you will, in a time of existential crisis. But I think that will have to be for the next one. We don't want to take up any of you, any more of your time. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for this space to reflect. And, and I really love that you're doing this podcast. I think uh, more academics should do that. And I'm you know, super grateful to be on. And I hope we can talk soon. I look forward to it again, Carmen. Thank you so much. And as always, thanks for listening. Until next time.